Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Brian Riedel. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He works on fiscal and economic policy. Brian has previously worked as the chief economist to Senator Rob Portman as, uh, the, and as the staff director of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Fiscal Responsibility and Economic Growth. He writes frequently for uh, many, many publications, National View and others, and he's, of course, written for City Journal. So, Brian, thanks very much for joining us. Glad to be here, Brian. Thank you. Um, you know, Congress is on recess this week, as most people know who follow these things. But there's a ton of news coming out of Washington. Uh, Last week, the Senate struck a temporary deal to raise the debt ceiling through December. The week before, Nancy Pelosi delayed a long-promised vote in the House on the $1 trillion bipartisan um, infrastructure bill, which already had passed the Senate and has been championed by uh, the Democratic Party's moderates. The party's progressive wing, however, insisted that the infrastructure measure be linked to a separate multi-trillion dollar social policy bill called Build Back Better. Uh, The moderates, uh, above all Senators uh, Joe Manchin and uh, Kirsten Sinema, uh, they say they won't vote for Build Back Better if its price tag remains in the stratospheric $3.5 trillion range. So that's a lot going on, a lot to take in. Uh, You know, Brian, you follow this uh, more closely than almost anybody I, I know. So perhaps you could help make sense of it all. You know, what has gone on over the last couple of weeks? What's the current state of play in Congress with regard to those two major bills? And how likely is it that uh, one or both uh, are going to pass? Well, Brian, Brian, I think you summarized well where we're at right now. Uh, on the debt limit, we are going to be waiting until December. What Mitch McConnell told the Democrats was, you're going to pass this yourselves in a reconciliation bill. And if you need to redo the budget resolution to give yourself permission to do it in a reconciliation bill, you now have eight weeks to do it. On the little dance between the infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill, what we're seeing right now ultimately is that Joe Manchin and uh, Kirsten Cinema have not budged on their point that they will not support $3.5 trillion in, in new gross spending. What ultimately we're learning is that the moderates have more power than the progressives. The the, the Democrats may have a majority in Congress, but it doesn't mean the progressives have a majority in Congress. And when you're in a 50-50 Senate, you can only go as far as the most moderate member you have. And it turns out that Manchin and Sinema will not budge on opposing the $3.5 trillion. So right now, what... Schumer and a lot of other Democrats are doing is they're starting to pare down that $3.5 trillion cost. Manchin had said $1.5 trillion is his cap. There are some indications he might go to $2 trillion. But ultimately, the Democrats are starting to, to, to realize after months and months and months that they don't have the votes for more than $1.5 trillion in a reconciliation. Now, the question is, where does that leave the infrastructure bill that is currently being held hostage by AOC and the progressives. Well, ultimately, the Democrats have 15 months to straighten this out. There is a majority support with these Democrats in Congress for the infrastructure bill, and there is majority support for a reconciliation bill of about $1.5 trillion. 
I can't imagine either side actually walking away and doing nothing when there is the votes for the half a loaf, the very expensive half a loaf. So I think ultimately we're going to end up with the infrastructure bill passed and we're going to end up with a reconciliation bill with a lower price tag than $3.5 trillion. Of course, it remains to be seen whether it will really be cheaper than $3.5 trillion or just gimmick down to a cheaper amount. Well, you know, we, we might not know exactly what form the um, reconciliation bill will take, the Build Back Better bill, uh, but we can be assured that it's going to involve a massive amount of social spending, um, you know, however many trillions. Uh, the progressive Democrats wanted to include new programs that I think it's, it's fair to say would result in a fundamental transformation of the relationship between American citizens and the government. Uh, you know, it's it's much more along a European model where you're creating a kind of cradle-to-grave welfare state. You're going to have universal daycare, pre-K, guaranteed child allowance, free college, all of this stuff. Now, you know, progressives place such a high value on these programs, at least rhetorically these days, that it's hard to imagine them parting voluntary, you know, voluntarily with any of them. They may have to, as you, you suggest. But, you know, what, what do you think that, that's in the bill we're going to actually wind up with in terms of uh, some of these, these really uh, dramatic expansions of the federal government? Well, Brian, you make a good point about, you know, kind of trying to build in some more European social democracy. There was an analysis done by the Hoover Institute at Stanford, I believe it was by John Kogan and Danny Heil, that said that if this bill passes... For the first time, we are going to have a majority of American citizens receiving a federal program, um, uh, uh, basically on the federal dole, which which we haven't had before. It's really a broad expansion. You have the child tax credits being expanded. There's very aggressive child care subsidies, pre-K funding, paid leave. On the health care side, expanding Obamacare, creating a new dental benefit for Medicare, then you have all sorts of housing, some infrastructure, some cheaper community college. On top of that, a little bit of Green New Deal with a lot of tax credits for climate innovation, some of which is funded by new taxes, not all of it. As for how they're going to cut this down, the little hint we've gotten from Nancy Pelosi today, which we've heard from others, is they're going to cut it down with gimmicks. And what they're going to do is They're going to take the $3.5 trillion, and instead of actually removing a lot of provisions, they're leading towards just putting fake expiration dates on it. So one way to cut down $3.5 trillion in half, for instance, would be to have the whole thing expire in five years instead of 10 years. That way, you have the same per year cost for the same programs. You just have the whole thing expire in five years. This is a gimmick to the extent that nobody believes Congress will actually let these programs expire. Of course, they're going to be renewed. And in fact, the way you do this is you make the most popular programs expire and dare the other side to let it expire. We've already seen this in the bill. The Democrats expanded the child credit earlier this year to $3,000 or $3,600 for a child under the age of six. This bill would extend that through 2025 and then cut it off on New Year's Day 2026. Not because Democrats actually want it to expire, but because they know that after five years, 
There is no way Republicans or Democrats would allow it to expire. Of course, it's going to get renewed. But by putting in a fake expiration date, you only score the first five years, which means $750 billion in costs for the second five years don't get scored. The word today is that they're going to do that with more and more provisions. They're going to take popular provisions and have them expire, knowing full well the cost will come later. You know, the the uh, Republicans, you know, they were quite happy to ignore explosions in federal spending, you know, really not just during the Trump years, but going all the way to back to Bush. Uh, you know, that makes it harder for them to sound the alarm uh, now about this this spending tsunami. Uh, meanwhile, you've got, you know, 19 Republican senators who voted yes on the infrastructure bill. And that's a move, you know, whose whose wisdom has been debated by many or, or at least the, uh, you know, the the amount of spending contained in that bill. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm wondering what your view is of the GOP in this uh, debate. You know, do they have an opportunity to be more constructive in the process? Uh, or are they basically just, you know, standing by and watching while this plays out really uh, between the progressives, progressive Democrats and, uh, you know, a couple of moderate Democrats? I agree with you that the Republican track record on spending and deficits is pretty weak. As a matter of fact, I say this as someone um, I I wrote so aggressively critting criticizing President Bush's spending spree in the early 2000s that I got banned from the Bush White House when I was in a previous think tank job. They actually banned me for being too critical. Republicans don't have a lot of credibility on on spending. But in this instance, I think Republicans are roughly spectators because I don't see how any responsible Republican can claim on board, even with the slimmed down trillion dollars or one and a half trillion dollars. I mean, we have such huge deficits coming ahead. Um, If the president's plans all get enacted, we are going to go from $17 trillion in publicly held debt before the pandemic to over $40 trillion in publicly held debt 10 years from now. That's the sum of $6 trillion in deficits over the last two years from the pandemic, plus $12 trillion in baseline deficits from our other government programs, plus as much as $6 trillion in new deficits from all these different Democratic bills. If Republicans are negotiating this and trying to get the cost down, say, from $2 trillion to $1 trillion, they're still negotiating and being part of a train that's going in the wrong direction. And I think... The best that Republicans can do is draw a line in the sand and say, we will not be a party to trillions of dollars in new spending. And to the extent that they really have any pull, it might be through the debt limit. Uh, To the extent that Democrats might run into problems in December raising the debt limit again, they might need Republican votes. But if Republicans are, are agreeing to be part of this process, it's probably because they've agreed to a couple trillion dollars in new spending, which... You know, personally, I I believe we already have a big government party. We don't need another. You know, uh, as a senator, uh, Joe Biden at least gestured in the direction of fiscal responsibility once in a while. Uh, in 2006, he, he, you know, criticized the indifference Congress was showing to the price our children and grandchildren will pay to redeem our debt when it comes to now, though, as, as you're noting, he may preside over, um, you know, a truly massive 
uh, increase in that debt. So, you know, what's going on? Have, have the Democrats just embraced modern monetary theory uh, completely? And, you know, I, I wonder what your view is of the long-term consequences of this for the country's, uh, you know, fiscal health and, uh, and economy. The Democrats have really galloped really far leftward from when Joe Biden made those comments 15 years ago. You know, if you take a look at previous Democratic presidential nominees, John Kerry, Barack Obama, and Hillary Clinton, they all promised $1 to $2 trillion over the following decade in new spending, mostly paid for with taxes. They didn't always hold to that, but they at least gave lip service. Joe Biden got elected promising $11 trillion in new spending over the decade. And yet he was the centrist because you had Elizabeth Warren wanting $40 trillion and Bernie wanting $97 trillion over 10 years. So I think what's happened with the Democratic Party is a couple things. First off, um, the progressive movement just shifted. We, we have this young group of progressives that are aging and becoming a bigger part of the electorate. And they're just further to the left, and they have shifted the Overton window so far to the left of what's acceptable that suddenly $11 trillion looks moderate. But another thing that happened that I think emboldened the left was the 2017 tax cuts. Um, when Republicans cut taxes by $1.5 trillion in 2017, there was a big shift on the left that said, well, if the Republicans aren't, if the Republicans are going to be hypocrites on deficits, then why are we holding ourselves back? And there was some truth to that. Republicans have been hypocrites on deficits. The problem is, instead of the Democrats saying, well, if they're going to cut taxes by $1.5 trillion, we want our own $1.5 trillion, they went off the reservation and said, if they're going to do $1.5 trillion in tax cuts, we're going to do $10 trillion in new spending. <laughs> or like I said, in, in, in the examples of Warren and Bernie, 40 or $97 trillion in new spending. So they, they didn't double down on what Republicans were doing. They They deck tuple down and more. But I think that that was the moment when Democrats took the wheels off and said, I don't even know if it's monetary, modern monetary theory. I think that's just a later justification they came up with. I think they came to a view of Republicans are going to be irresponsible. We're going to embrace our id. The problem is the the long-term numbers are so scary that you really, we should be, we should be going the other direction, trying to rein in the budget. For instance, According to the Congressional Budget Office, over the next 30 years, we face a baseline deficit of $112 trillion. That's just the baseline. That assumes the expiration of all the stimulus spending, the expiration of the 2017 tax cuts, no more wars, no more major recessions, no terrorist attacks, no natural disasters, no new spending programs, and low interest rates. $112 trillion in deficits over the next 30 years, most of which, nearly all of which, is driven by Social Security and Medicare shortfalls that are getting bigger and bigger. At the end of this 30-year period, the debt is going to top 200% of the economy. The deficit will be 13% of the economy per year. And at that point, interest will consume half of all tax dollars. And this is the low interest rate scenario. If interest rates rise by one point over what CBO assumes, you add $30 trillion to the 30-year to the cost. So I look at this and say, my goodness, we should be reforming these programs and reining in the baseline growth, not adding 
more fuel to the fire with trillions and more growth. Because ultimately, if we're going to spend like Europe, we're going to need to tax like Europe. And that means not just taxing the rich. That means going the true European route of huge value-added taxes, which are essentially national sales taxes, huge payroll taxes, and higher income taxes all on the middle class. If that's what, if the American people want all this spending, they need to get ready for European taxes. That's my worry. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, you've been doing some work on means testing of benefits, um, you know, which certainly uh, would play into this argument as a way maybe to, uh, you know, to suggest some reforms that, that might constrain the spending. Could you talk a little bit about that research that you've been doing? Yeah, I did, I did a report a couple months ago on how to save a trillion dollars in spending over 10 years, not by raising taxes on the rich, but by cutting spending on the rich. And the three areas I looked at were Social Security, Medicare, and farm subsidies. Um, the issue with Social Security and Medicare is not the, the low income or even the middle class. We're talking about people who are going to retire with millions of dollars in liquid assets, not just their home, but millions of dollars in liquid assets, who are still going to be collecting huge subsidies well beyond anything they paid into the system. I don't begrudge people saying I, I should get back what I paid into the system. But when very wealthy individuals are getting back twice what they paid into the system, for instance, on Medicare, you kind of wonder what the policy purpose is there. So what I said is there are ways we can at least start to pare back the benefit growth for multi-millionaire retirees. And then on farm subsidies, I looked at the same thing. And it turns out the majority of farm subsidies go to farmers with annual incomes well over $200,000 a year. That's net income after they already paid all their bills. And that's averaged over the long term, not just during a good year. And so I said, well, Let's let's focus farm subsidies on actual struggling family farms rather than large agribusinesses. If we do this, we can save a trillion dollars over 10 years without raising taxes by a penny and without hurting the middle class or low income individuals. This should be the low hanging fruit. This should be the easy stuff. It's not enough to solve the problem by itself, but we should start by cutting spending for the rich, which will at least lessen the amount of damage we need to do elsewhere on other policies. Well, thank you very much, Brian. That was very illuminating, uh, a little, actually more than a little troubling. Um, you know, don't forget to check out Brian Riedel's work. Uh, we've, we've got some of it on the City Journal website. We'll link to his author page in the description. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a ratings on iTunes. Brian Riedel, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.